America, and other free and open societies face crucial challenges and opportunities abroad that affect security and prosperity at home. This is a series of conversations with guests who bring deep understanding of today's battlegrounds and creative ideas about how to compete, overcome challenges, capitalize on opportunities, and secure a better future. I am H.R. McMaster. This is Battlegrounds. On today's episode of Battlegrounds, our focus is on Peru, a prominent South American country and strategic partner of the United States. Our guest is Dr. Julio Guzman, the founder of Peru's centrist Partido Morado, or the Purple Party. Dr. Guzman began his career as an economist at the Inter-American Development Bank in Washington, D.C., and taught at Georgetown University and the University of Maryland. In 2011, he served as Peru's Deputy Minister of Labor. The following year, Dr. Guzman became the Secretary General of the Office of the Prime Minister. Dr. Guzman was a Peruvian presidential candidate in 2016 and 2021. He holds a Ph.D. in economics from the University of Maryland. Ancient Americans migrated to Norte Chico roughly 5,000 years ago and formed the oldest known civilization in the Americas. The ancient Peruvian Inca civilization was the largest empire in the Western Hemisphere from the 13th to the 16th centuries CE. Inca rulers subjugated and relocated populations to agricultural and military hotspots in order to fuel the empire's economy and solidify their rule. Spanish conquistadors arrived in Peru in 1526, when a protracted civil war had weakened the Inca empire's defenses. Led by Francisco Pizarro, the Spaniards took the victorious Inca king Atahualpa hostage. The Spaniards executed Atahualpa on trumped-up charges, despite accepting a ransom for his release, and chose a new king. Pizarro, allied with enemies of the Incas, marched south and occupied the Inca capital of Cusco. The Spaniards plundered Peru's economy and sent hordes of Peru's gold, silver, and valuable goods back to Spain. Conquest was protracted, and Peruvian viceroy Francisco de Toledo finally established an uneasy peace in the 1570s. Toledo adopted indigenous institutions to impose forced labor to fund the Spanish Empire's exploits. Through the 18th century, the viceroyalty of Peru included much of South America. Reforms in the 18th century divided the territories into the viceroyalties of Peru, New Granada, and Rio de la Plata. Peruvians declared independence in 1821 and achieved complete independence in 1824 under Simón Bolívar, the president of Gran Colombia, who became dictator of Peru until 1826. The struggle for territorial integrity lasted decades. In 1866, Peru defeated Spain in a war over the Chincha Islands. The victory bolstered Peruvian national pride and unity. Peru improved its infrastructure and modernized its economy. Across the subsequent century, Peru experienced territorial losses and gains, including a loss in the 1879-1883 Pacific War with Chile and a gain following its 1941 border war with Ecuador. The United States established diplomatic relations with Peru in 1827. 
Today, the U.S. and Peru partner over shared interests, including democracy, security, mutually beneficial trade, and human rights. Despite positive political reforms in the 20th century, close to 15 successful and 10 unsuccessful coups resulted in an often unstable political, military, and economic atmosphere. The century ended with conflict under President Fujimori, who initiated a self-coup that dissolved the Peruvian Congress. Peru continues to face significant challenges to its democratic values. In December of 2022, former President Pedro Castillo attempted a self-coup to dissolve Peru's legislature and announced an emergency government ahead of a vote to impeach him. Peruvian authorities ousted and arrested Castillo, and violent protests erupted. Governments across the Americas remain divided over their support for Castillo or the current president, Dina Boluarte. We welcome Dr. Guzman to discuss Peruvian politics, increasing Chinese influence in Latin America, and political, security, and economic trends in the region. Dr. Julio Guzman, bienvenido. Welcome to Battlegrounds. It's great to have you on to talk about a really important subject. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me here. Thank you for Stanford University, Hoover Institution, and you, General. Thank you so much. Well, we couldn't have anybody better with us to talk about Peru and 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 uh, and the Western Hemisphere broadly, all of Latin America. And and as you know, I I love Peru. My experience there was tremendous. I was a uh, an exchange cadet at the Academia Militar de Chirios in, in Lima and had the opportunity to travel to Arequipa, to Cusco, to Iquitos. And I saw that this beautiful country of desert, mountains, coastline in the Amazon region. And, uh, and of course, you know, I was there a long time ago in the, in the, uh, in the early 1980s. And, and it was a really pivotal moment for Peru. It was, uh, it was in the midst of an of a insurgency, a counterinsurgency against Sendero Luminoso. Uh, the Soviet presence was leaving. <laughs> Wherever we visited, we saw Soviet uh, soldiers and advisors trying to hide from us. Uh, and, and there was a big shift going on in terms of much better relations with the United States. And, 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 uh, and so I, I wondered if you might just share some history with us, you know, the history of from that period through what's been a pretty turbulent time, you know, of, of uh, presidents accused of, and, and convicted of corruption and, and now the social unrest and polarization uh, could you could you kind of explain to our viewers your view of of, of recent Peruvian history? Of course. Uh, first of all, I'm very glad that you like Peru. It means like you have a very good taste <laughs> of, of my country. It has an amazing history. And of course, a uh, lot of uh, diversity, geographic diversity, cultural, ethnic. It's a beautiful country. But as you said, it has many challenges. And just to put it in one idea, I believe that the difference between the 70s and the 80s and now in Peru is not about the structural uh, problems. The structural problems are still there, which is inequalities, lack of opportunities, discrimination, racism, and all those kinds of things that are really structural. I believe that the difference now are uh, because of two factors. The first one is that the world has changed and has uh, uh, affected the economy, the country, and the region in general. But the second one is that we, as Peruvians, uh, has lacked of uh, political reform and electoral reform. That is something that we can talk about later. But, uh, but I believe there are these two factors. The world that has changed, 
and also a series of reforms that uh, that we were not able to uh, to uh, do. Well, you know, our, our viewers, uh, our viewers heard and, and saw in, in the opening uh, about uh, Pedro Castillo's you know, self coup. And so that, that would bring us to the present and, and seems to be maybe a manifestation of this lack of, of political reform. And yeah, I think there's a poll in December where 44 percent of Peruvians supported this kind of self coup, the effort to, you know, the, the, you know, the, the effort to dissolve the legislature, despite it being unconstitutional. So could you kind of explain the dynamics in Peru today, maybe as as the result of, of what you what you've already cited as a lack of political reform? Yes, well, first, uh, I think that analyzing Pedro Castillo, former government, uh, is not going to give us a holistic look about what's going on in Peru. Uh, I believe that Castillo is just a manifestation. It's a manifestation of uh, many changes that has interacted over these last two decades. And I will say that Castillo is the result, is the outcome of the combination of external factors and internal factors in Peru. The external factors are those uh, uh, structural changes like uh, technological change, globalization, that has made people wonder what's gonna be the future. I mean, I don't have even my job secure. I don't have my, my way of life have changed. The communication, the, the way I'm living the, the day by day has changed because of technological change, but also globalization that has even created more inequality. So first, we don't need to lose these external factors that has affected the whole world. Uh, and also COVID, uh, because COVID was, uh, deep down, COVID was an emotional shock aside from being a pandemic, was an emotional shock to people telling them you are very vulnerable. And because of those conditions, my impression is that most people in the world, and particularly in the developing world, they have been thinking their lives in a different way. They want different things and they, their priorities have changed. And when the priorities of people change, then political preferences change also. And finally, in the external side, I believe that also the United States has uh, contributed with this uh, uh, problem because the United States has abandoned multilateralism. And uh, the United States used to be the top defender of uh, democracy in, uh, in the world. So first, the external factors. And then the internal factors in Peru are, first of all, huge inequalities. Incredible. I will, I will uh, uh, point it out that Peru is one of the most unequal countries in the world is one of the 20 most unequal countries in the world. Uh, aside from that, we have that uh, in Peru, we don't have uh, a, a strong political institutions. Uh, uh, put it in a very simple way, we don't have a strong political parties. We don't have uh, a, a, a people who really take politics very seriously. And in addition to that, we don't have political reform and electoral reform, what it means. Political reform means that uh, it's very important to give a stability to the guy who, <laughs> who is administrating the power, in this case, the president. In Peru, the balance of power is not very well defined in the constitution. Uh, examples of that is that uh, Congress can take out the president in a couple of days. <laughs> Why? Because in the constitution, there is not single explanation of what are the reasons why you can uh, take out a president in Peru. So what I'm telling you is that it is, if Congress oppose uh, the president, 
it's very easy for the Congress to create this political instability. Another example that is really weird that happened in Peru is that once the president is elected, when the president creates the, the, uh, his uh, cabinet, he needs to go to Congress to get the approval of the whole cabinet to govern, which is uh, very contradictory because we are living in a presidential uh, uh, and political system. Um, and in terms of electoral reforms, we have incentives for uh, 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 people that coming from illegal activities and people who are looking for money and investing in politics uh, get involved in the in the whole process. Um, just to clarify one thing, most people ask me, but if the constitution comes from the beginning of the of the nineties and it's exactly the same as now, why didn't happen in the past? And now it's happening with Castillo. Well, my reaction to that is, first of all, none of the presidents, with the exclusion of Fujimori, that was a dictator, none of them were able to govern the country. For what? For the same reasons. Because a president under that constitution do, cannot display the power in order to make reform and to be isolated from political noise. So first of all, I want to remember that all this time, non-president has the ability to do it. And, but the difference with Castillo, the difference with, with, with Castillo is political polarization, uh, political fragmentation. What I'm saying is that uh, this is the first time in Peruvian uh, recent history in which six consecutive presidents did not have a number of congressmen in Congress who can protect them from this instability. Right. And that's a very, it's a key point. The last six presidents in Peru did not have enough protection in Congress, I mean, number of congressmen, to can protect them. In the 90s and the early 2000s, yes, that happened at least. So you have this, like we do in the United States, I would say to a certain extent, this need for important reform and, and a, 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 a political uh, situation this fragmentation that you described that that is preventing any kind of reform from happening, and it seems that maybe what I would anticipate is your disappointment in in these uh, in this situation is shared kind of across the region. I know that you're you're soon going to give a talk at the at the Latin American Political Science Association in Vancouver about the degree to which Peru maybe represents as representative of other problems across across the region, across uh, Latin America. Uh, could you maybe talk about that and, and maybe describe for our viewers what some are calling the, this sort of pink wave of, uh, of socialist movements, maybe socialist authoritarianism? I mean, I, I'm thinking of, of, uh, of, co of course, what's, what, what happened in Chile uh, in terms of the effort to rewrite the constitution, which, which failed under the Bork uh, government um, in, in September of of last year, I'm thinking of Colombia, uh, which has a where, where President Petro ran with the message of politics of love to move Colombia toward peace, uh, but is also now consolidating some power within institutions in a way that is much more milder, but but uh, but replicates a little bit what President Lopez Obrador is doing uh, in in Mexico, for example. So. Uh, we have Lula da Silva in, in Brazil now. Uh, so there's been a movement maybe to the far left. Um, it seems to be a trend in the region. So could, could you maybe just explain what you're going to tell uh, your, your colleagues at the, at the conference coming up in Vancouver about the region more broadly? 
Yes, I, I think as a Peruvian, I am very interested of what's going on in Peru, but from a uh, more ample perspective, I believe that Peru is just an example of what could happen in the whole Latin American region in the next years. What I just said about Castillo is that the political chaos that was created was the combination of a mess in, in international context and also very difficult conditions internally. When those uh, conditions are not fallible, you have an explosion. And, and that's exactly what is going to happen in, in Latin America. Empirical evidence show that the countries that has been able to confront these external changes are the ones that has strong institutions and rules that are respected. What is going to happen in the next years, I believe, is that this political instability is going to spread uh, in the region because the region share exactly the same conditions. I'm going to go deep in this in this uh, 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 point. What are the consequences of a person like Castillo? Because for me, it's just a manifestation. It's political chaos, which means total improvisation, no plan of government, no ideology. I'm going to even explain why I think that way. No technical team, no nothing, no experience in government. So this situation in the whole region it's uh, creating the perfect conditions for this kind of person to emerge politically. My One of my main ideas about Latin America is that I believe we are making a mistake thinking politics in the region in the left and right axis, in the left and right political axis. We used to do that in the 70s, in the 80s, and we are prone to do that and say, oh, this is happening because uh, governments are on the left or are on the right. I believe that this is not uh, uh, the right way to see it. Why? Because if you see the region, you're going to see governments on the right and on the left that are exactly in the same problems, and they have exactly the same challenges. I'm going to put some examples. In Brazil, we have Lula now. But just a few years ago, the same people that voted for Lula voted for Bolsonaro, the same people. The same people that voted for Boric in Chile just less than two years ago, yesterday voted for the far right in Chile. In Peru, Castillo, that is considered extreme left in, in Peru, uh, uh, the mayor of Lima, who is 30% of total votes in the country, is a far right guy who won the elections only months after Castillo's election, Guatemala. Guatemala is a country that is going to have election these years. You know who is leading the polls? Extreme far uh, political candidate, Rios. Extreme far. What is happening in Paraguay just days ago? Again, a very conservative right uh, uh, a candidate from the right winning the election. So when people talk about Nicaragua, Venezuela, Bolivia, uh, what is going on in Argentina, in, in Chile, they used to forget, General, that there are other cases in Latin America that is telling you a different story, supposedly, like Guatemala, Paraguay, as I said, what happened yesterday in Chile, so on. So my conclusion is that we don't need to see what is happening in Latin America in the political axis, left and right, because I believe that there are other factors that are explaining what is going on now in Latin America that is having a democratic recession. 
What are those factors? And I'm gonna end here. I believe that the X, the axis of political preference has changed from left to the right, has changed to the old establishment and the new people and the new ideas. Why? Because the priorities of Latin Americans are no longer if the state is big or is small, more taxes, less taxes. I believe that now their priorities, who is gonna solve my problems yeah. that are completely new? I'm not accustomed to these problems, the pandemic, all these things. And, uh, and I need new people, fresh people, because the old political establishment has done nothing in order to help my family, in order to give me answers to my problems. So I believe that's the that's the new axis. You know, Julio, I think you see this even even in a small country like El Salvador, where you have a cult of personality really right. taking over because of the the terrible crime problems. You know that that, uh, that that's that El Salvador experienced. So if the people there's this, a political crisis across the region, which is depressing enough, but I think it, it's going to get worse, isn't it, Julio? Because of of the economic outlook, could you share your perspective? on the economic outlook. I mean, I, I was optimistic, I thought, you know, when, when we're beginning this sort of selective decoupling from China, I thought the big benefactor could be countries in the Western hemisphere as we endeavor to make supply chains more resilient and to diversify more broadly uh, in, in areas uh, like, like rare earths and other minerals, for example, or, or various uh, forms of manufacturing. Uh, that where where Western Hemisphere countries are very competitive uh, in terms of labor costs and so forth, but but your perspective is different. You see an economic crisis coming. Could you explain that to our viewers? Yes, of course. Uh, the economic crisis is going to make the situation worse. This uh, new axis in which people are deciding their political authorities are leading to populist guys, dictators guys as i already said that they have no plan no ideas improvisation so this situation that is now called democratic recession is going to become a democratic depression why i believe that is going to happen really soon in the next i would say three or four years because there are who, 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 there, there yeah. are 11 elections in the next year and a half or yes. so Three years, yeah. yeah right. In the next three years, there are 11 elections, just to have an idea of how the the brutal changes could occur in Latin America if uh, the, ten, the trend is not changed. Uh, what I was saying is that in the next future, two factors are going to be combined that will create a situation in which Latin America will face extremely challenging in terms of keeping democracy and the rule of law. The first one, is an economic crisis in the making. Uh, one of the things that Latin America did in the last 30 years was to maintain macroeconomic stability, order in the house, but at the same time, growing permanently. Why? Because international conditions were great for Latin America. Uh, uh, first of all, interest rates were on the floor. Second, commodity prices were at historical highs. And finally, China and the world economy uh, was expanding. And of course, the demand for Latin American products increased. If, you, if we remember that 80%, 80% of Latin American GDP depends on those external factors. It's uh, uh, good news and bad news. Good news because all this period, we have been benefit for that. But bad news because we don't have control of our destiny. 
we are a natural resource oriented region. Why this is important in the analysis that we're doing in the next years? It's important because those three conditions that I already explained have completely changed. Interest rates now are increasing very significantly. Then commodity prices are really volatile. We don't know where where are going, and the global economy is in recession, and it's a recession. So what is what what is already happening when you see the economic figures across Latin America? This is not only a few countries, but across Latin America, is that debt rates has increased very high. They are really high, and it's very worrisome the situation of Latin America who manage external debt, but at the same time fiscal revenues has decreased and the ability of the government to provide more services. Why? Because the COVID destroyed national savings across the region. So we have one scenario in which the economy used to uh, have a not very promising trend. But the second factor, and, and, and this is more related with foreign policy, is China. And why? Because uh, uh, China is going to have the plate serve in Latin America. It's going uh, to be a fire sale, right, for China? Yeah, of course. Uh, I, 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 all, I, all, I always say uh, China is the, is the pound shop of Latin America. Uh, why? Because Latin America will need fast money, quick money, and non-question-asked money in this situation in which we have under fiscal stress. And no commercial banks, no the Inter-American Development Bank or the IMF or the World Bank are able to do that. China is able to do that because it's a dictatorship. They have vertical institutions and they can make decisions very quickly. The presence of China in Latin America has been increased incredible in the last uh, 15 years. And China, uh, because of challenges that China has in his own economy, China is forced to move resources from China to the developing world. So in the next three or four years, the result is going to be a region that is going to be under economic stress, but at the same time, pressures of illiberal values and illiberal ideas coming from countries like China and Russia that will, that is, that will keep trying to increase their presence and their ideology in the region. And for our viewers, I would like to tell them to, to read more about this in your excellent foreign affairs piece recently on China's Thank influence you. in the region. And, and just a few statistics, you know, to, to continue in this conversation, trade between China and economies in Latin America grew 26 fold from two, the year 2000 to, to the year 2020 and is expected to double by 2035 uh, from 2018 to 2020, two year period. China invested $16 billion in overseas mining, including investing in South America's Lithium Triangle. This is the area of Argentina, Bolivia, and Chile. And, uh, and, and, and uh, those countries, of course, account for 56% of the world's lithium resources, which, of course, is, is a mineral in very high demand because of batteries and electrification and so forth. Uh, the PRC is the largest investor in Peru's mining sector, as I'm sure you know, controlling seven of, seven of Peru's largest mines. And and so you, you have that the economic influence growing, but in a way that's predatory, Julio. I mean, I look at countries like, like Ecuador, 
you know, and the huge dam that was built in Ecuador, that that when it, when it was turned on, the 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 uh, turbines were turned on, you know, that they, they got clogged with silt, they blew out the power grid, uh, and and Ecuador's indebted for many generations to China for this expensive and and uh, an ineffective project. But you know, Chuck, despite the, that record, it seems like their political influence is is growing along with the economic influence. I mean, I'm thinking of. Uh, Lula da Silva, this is the president of, of Brazil, meeting with Xi Jinping and, and then tweeting, we will work to expand trade and balance world geopolitics, which he means balance mm -hmm. against the United States. Uh, da Silva has said that, hey, Zelensky, he's just as responsible for the war in Ukraine as Putin. <laughs> and, and so uh, so I, I'm really concerned about this, this movement uh, toward China because uh, be, because of China's illiberal practices, the setting of the debt trap, the effort to create servile relationships, uh, and then use those relationships for geopolitical influence and, and really against U.S. interests. So could you, what is your assessment of the situation? What is your prognosis? I mean, uh, is, there, is there a way out of this? You mentioned one of the factors contributing to it is, I think, U.S. disengagement from the region. You know, I, I had the opportunity to visit Panama, for example. Uh, last year, and we hadn't had an ambassador there for six years. So, uh, could you maybe share with our viewers what your what your assessment is of Chinese influence in 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 the hemisphere and and what the trajectory is and what we can maybe do about it? Yes. Well, first of all, I'm going to talk uh, as a Peruvian and Latin American, who my objective is John is to look at the region and my country development. And why I am against, or I am worried about Chinese presence in the region. Why? Because, uh, 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 first of all, any investment is welcome. It creates jobs. Uh, new technology, of course, increase productivity, a new uh, culture, exchange of information. That's great. But, but if that kind of intervention is going to affect the rule of law, is going to affect the respect for, for national constitutions is going to affect political sovereignty, sovereignty in countries. And also, at the same time, it's going to affect democratic values. Then that kind of intervention needs to be regulated. Of course, nobody is here talking about against Chinese investment. No, what I'm talking about is the corrosive Chinese influence in the, in the region. The good one, we need to say, OK, that's great, the good one. But unfortunately, Chinese presence, a, a, a big part of Chinese presence is eroding rule of law, institutions, the constitution and democracy. Let's put some example for people to understand what, I, uh, what I'm saying. Uh, long contracts. Chinese are uh, lending uh, uh, money to many Latin American contract, uh, countries. And what are the conditions of those uh, contracts? For instance, one condition is that the contract should be absolutely confidential. The governments cannot publish, cannot make public. That is against our own rules. And at the same time, it, give, it takes degrees of freedom from ministers of finance to manage debt. At the same time, for instance, this kind of contracts also uh, force Latin American countries to pay first China uh, in, in, in relation to the other creditors if something goes bad. This violates international standards. And finally, most of uh, Chinese loans to Latin American countries include a clause in which said, this country is going to pay 
the whole debt immediately if the country creates a public policy that it's against China. Right. Not a public policy related with the contract, right. a public policy in general. This is just one example on how Chinese intervention that we can see, oh, it's good for the country, indeed is eroding rule of law and institutions. I'm going to end with this. Why the rule of law and institutions over investment of that kind? Why? Because empirical evidence across the world said conclusively the two most important factors to achieve human progress and economic development are the rule of law and the quality of institutions. Right. That's why I'm worried. And of course, there, there's no transparency associated with these agreements either. And, and I think, you know, I, I think it's a setup. It's a setup for a catastrophe potentially. And I, you know, some things in life are black swans, right? Unanticipated events with you know, with unforeseen consequences and, and other things, I think we could call them pink flamingos. I mean, they're right in front of you and, and, and they're quite obvious. And I'm thinking about maybe potential geostrategic crises, you know, like we saw with the reinvasion of Ukraine in February of, of last year. Uh, but also what, what about something uh, like even more aggression toward Taiwan or in the South China Sea? What would the impact be on uh, on on Latin America? Uh, of a geostrategic crisis uh, precipitated by Chinese aggression. What, what happens uh, after China blockades Taiwan or even maybe tries a, a cross-strait invasion? Well, what, what China is doing, it's, uh, it's transiting from a different kind of presence in the region. At the very beginning, uh, some years ago, China invested a lot in natural resources uh, in particular projects, um, some infra infrastructure, utilities. Uh, so they concentrated their, their investment in hardware, we'll say, hardware. But now, over the years, the Chinese has transited from hardware control to software control. What it means software control in the region means that China is trying to take control over the networks of how the economy works. For instance, telecommunications, value chains, uh, important military posts, a strategic critical infrastructure in the region like ports, mega, mega ports. So what we are seeing is that China is updating his strategy in Latin America. It's no longer hardware and mining and natural resources and food stuff. Now China is taking control of the design of the architecture. And now in the 21st century, it's much more important to have control over the, the software, of the, the rules, than over the hardware or the concrete uh, things. So, uh, and, and this is the way they are, they are doing this in Latin America. Uh, what is going to happen, uh, 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 for instance, a Chinese invention in Taiwan, that nobody's talking about this, uh, is going to have critical consequences the next day. Not in the next two months, but the next day. Why? Because uh, one of the things that are going to happen is that the next day, Latin American countries will have will receive a lot of political pressure from both China and the United States to take sides. In the case of the United States, to help or to complement efforts for economic sanctions that are going to be there. We know they're going to be there. But on the other hand, China, that is going to push not to do that because of the incredible economic interdependence and the dependence that China has created in Latin America to its economy. But economically, 
also is going to be affects in the next day if China invades Taiwan. Uh, and the reason is really simple. Uh, China is uh, it's going to be limited in their value change production of technology and also industrial stuff. And guess who are the most important providers of those kind of natural resources? Latin America. What is going to happen with China? It's going to adjust GDP growth in, immediately in that year. And what is going to happen in Brazil, Argentina, Paraguay, who uh, export food stuff? They are going to be affected. So invasion of Taiwan is going to create political instability and is going to create a, 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 a back. Uh, it's going to have an effect on economic uh, uh, growth immediately. Of course, affecting jobs, affecting uh, poverty, and so on. But this is plus the idea that we already discussed. So the situation is not the situation is not very promising. You, General, said why the United States or the Western world are not talking about this. And, and I talked to to many many people here in Washington. I met maybe more than 100, uh, not only uh, expert but also international organizations to to raise awareness about uh, this issue. And um, my guess why they are not talking about this is in part inertia. Inertia, the fact that over so many years the priorities of the state has been in other parts of the world. Second. I believe that people took for granted Latin America. Yeah. They believe that because we share cultural ties and we have been you know, uh, sharing uh, liberal values, uh, they is not gonna change and there was a mistake. But I think there is another reason. And, that, and I believe that within the United States, leaders have start losing faith in their own values. And it's, it's, it's sad. But but it's true. You see how U.S. politics is going, and there are people who are really rejecting American values and rejecting Western values. Uh, and I believe that this has a huge impact of the decision of the U.S. government to have a strong, a solid foreign policy based on a couple of values, democracy and the rule of law. And I think that has been uh, uh, important in this situation. Yeah, I think you make a really important point, right? We have to have a competent foreign policy and economic policy uh, in, in the hemisphere, but we also have to be confident, confident in our democratic principles and institutions and, and processes. And I think our, our confidence is shaken uh, for a number of factors, which we, we, we could talk about it an, another time. Uh, but I think it is immensely important to restore competence as well as confidence. I wonder if you might talk about the effect that Chinese influence is already having in the, in the region. And I'm thinking in particular about the Pacific Alliance and how we took that for granted for, for many years. Could you explain to our viewers what the Pacific Alliance is, why it's important, and what's happening to it? Yes, of course. Uh, the Pacific Alliance used to be the group of countries that were pretty aligned to Western values. What are Western values? Uh, free markets, uh, the protection of human rights, the protection of minorities, uh, democracy, uh, freedom. Those countries, uh, Mexico, Colombia, Peru, and Chile, indeed uh, joined many years ago, uh, not only to create an economic bloc 
to take advantage of their uh, capabilities to export to the world, but fundamentally to create a political platform. Why? To make sure that the advance of non-democratic initiatives could take over the region, starting by Venezuela, Cuba, and now Nicaragua. So that was the idea. And, and the Pacific Alliance was important because there was a stability in that position. If you put in a graph the, pos the political position of the Pacific Alliance over these decades in terms of foreign policy and the ideology of the governments, you're going to see that the political position in foreign affairs is the same, but the governments change center, left, right. At the end of the day, those countries look pretty strong in spite of changes that could occur politically, internally in, the, in those countries. Now that situation general has changed. And that is a breaking point, is an alarm for the democratic countries in the world about what is going to happen in Latin America. The balance of power between this uh, uh, illiberal left dictatorial left and the democratic uh, uh, group, this power of balance has been broken. For the first time in, 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 in some decades, we have the case of Mexico. We are seeing how AMLO is taking over institutions. Uh, we are seeing this in the case of Petro, who is uh, not only negotiating, but also makes uh, make Maduro a very good friend of uh, his and, uh, and also, uh, we are seeing this in, in the attitudes that these countries had in the case of Peru. For example, AMLO has been protecting, has been defending Castillo all of this time. When the international uh, opinion, all of them agree, and of course Peruvians agree, that Castillo broke the law. He violated the constitutions more than one time in only five minutes of talking. Uh, so you see that, but also in Colombia, there is information that, they, that uh, people don't know, but Petro, Petro received Castillo lawyer in Bogota. Petro met the lawyer of former president Castillo to talk about the situation of a president that was taken out from, from uh, power because he violated the, consti the constitution. So uh, what is the message? that the Pacific Alliance and particularly Mexico and Colombia is given to the region, the United States and the Western world. You know what? I don't care about the constitution. Yeah. I don't care about the nature of a constitution and I don't care about the rules. So if in the next two years, something happened here, uh, I am anticipating how I'm gonna react. And that's dangerous. And that's, that's pretty dangerous. You could, anticipate something from, in the case of instability of Bolivia, or maybe uh, uh, Honduras, or maybe you know, even Argentina, but it was really difficult to anticipate this kind of reactions for those countries. And I think the Pacific Alliance is a, is a, is a great example of, uh, of why uh, we need to work really hard and we need to start recognizing that there is a problem. If we do not recognize that there is a problem, we're not going to do anything. And, and that's what, I see, what I'm feeling now.
And this is an area that, that has been neglected for too long. I mean, I, I do think we did take it for granted. I mean, the trends were in a positive direction. Just, I mean, less than five, maybe about five, six, seven years ago, it's, this has happened uh, pretty quickly in terms of this movement toward what you call in your excellent essay in Time magazine, uh, a democratic depression. And so I wonder if you could if you could take a, a projection into the future as that essay did, and we're going to get a little bit more, we're going to get depressed here, I think, as you talk about this, but maybe talk about the you know where you see the trends going in in the region over the next you know five years or so, or or maybe even go country by country. You know, we have uh, Guatemala has has elections on on June twenty fifth. Uh, Argenti Argentinian elections, presidential elections are in October. Of course, you mentioned all the problems in, in Mexico. I mean, during the last election in Mexico, the midterm elections, over 100 politicians were, were killed, were assassinated in, in the lead up to the elections. Uh, it, its homicide rate is, you know, is 28 uh, intentional homicides per 100,000 people. We have the border issues there, obviously, that Americans are concerned about and the fentanyl issues and the, you know, and, and that election is coming up in July of 2024. So could you maybe summarize your essay about the democratic depression that's coming and then maybe make some predictions about some of these near-term important political milestones? Yes, uh, I believe that the final shot, the final bullet is gonna be the economy. Because everything that we are talking now, political crisis and all these problems during all these years, happened in a context of continuous economic growth. And now, from now, that growth is not gonna happen. So what is new in this new era for the region? What is new is that political instability and crisis for the first time in more than 20 years is gonna be combined with an economic situation that most people are not gonna be able to confront. That is the news. The economy is gonna be the last bullet in Latin America in the last three years. And this is pretty scary. This is very scary because it is telling us that maybe the uh, this decade is going to be the second lost decade in Latin America. The first one was the 80s, but it looks like it's going to be the second lost decade in Latin America in the usual as the business as usual scenario. Of course, is nothing it uh, is done, but I have have hope. I have hope. Why? Because there are ways of doing things. And in my article in Time Magazine. I, uh, I propose uh, 10 commandments that the Western world, particularly the United States, should follow in order to start thinking about designing a plan, a plan that, of course, doesn't exist right, right now. Um, um, I'm not going to go to the 10, but I'm going to mention just a couple of them. And the first one is honesty. It's, it's, you cannot do something if you do not believe on that. <laughs> Uh, and and, and well, I think what, what you wrote what you wrote is that the battle for Latin America is more about principles than economic need. Yeah, uh, that's yeah, that's another uh, 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 commandment which is uh, focus in which is important. And here there is a, a huge confusion even here in Washington that people believe that the way to go is to play the Chinese game, is to fight dollar by dollar. Uh, uh, the competition of who pours more money in Latin, in Latin America. And that's a mistake. It's a mistake for different reasons. It's a mistake because the United States cannot compete 
with the uh, amount of resources, but also the United States do not doesn't have the kind of institutions in order to do that, like China. But also, it's a mistake because political liberalization does not follow economic growth. Economic growth does not end finally in democracies in general. And 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 the other reason, which is the point in my article, is that here we are not fighting for money. Here we are fighting for principles and values and, and hemispheric security. That's, that's the main point, hemispheric security, values, and principles. Let's think, how could you build the rule of law, lose uh, the, the rule of law and institutions? How do you build that? With values and ideas, not with money. Countries has excelled in history, particularly in modern history, because they have been able to convert their ideas and values into institutions. And those institutions are the ones who created wealth and economic progress, not on the other way around. So if we need to, to fight or to win the battle in terms of ideas and principles, then we don't need to invest in, in, in physical capital. We need to invest in human capital. If the Chinese invest in natural resources mining, if the Chinese invest in mines, we need to invest in mines. And I think that's the difference. <laughs> if we train leaders, yeah. if we work at the base of the social pyramid, training people, make them understand how democracy and how the rule of law is important for them and for their children and for their family, then we're going to have in the future a new generation of people that are going to have stronger values and they're going to be, make better decisions. We need to go. This is the way to go. This is the way to go, to focus on uh, human capital and to engage uh, with Latin America in order to do that. I talk about how to do that, but I'm not going to uh, go deep in that in that issue here. Well, you, you know, you mentioned education you, prominently yes. in this essay. Could you maybe just say a little bit more about that in terms of uh, of what you think could be done in, in a concrete way to improve education, which, of course, in turn, uh, would help strengthen institutions and governance and, and economic policies, for example? Yes, uh, there are a couple of ideas. The first idea is uh, we need to be sure that more Latin Americans are engaged in the Western democratic uh, uh, educational system. Uh, if you, for instance, just for putting an, an example, if you look at the number of Latin Americans in terms of students, faculty, and researchers in American in United States campuses, uh, they are the minority. We are under uh, represented on those uh, campuses. We are not there. How can we expect? that the future leaders who used to be the people who study abroad, they are not being uh, uh, engaged of embrace. How can we expect that in the future, they could think like, like us in terms of democratic uh, uh, values? So uh, when I went to different US campuses, I saw many, many people from Asia. Uh, and, I, and I think that's great, but I don't think that the number of people from Asia is just the result of economic growth and the market and, and, and just spontaneity. spontaneity. Is, it was political decisions from the universities to attract students from there. So 
it's important to create incentives, fiscal incentives, for instance, to private uh, uh, universities and other kind of incentives for public universities here in the United States to be able to attract more young people that in the future, in the next 10 years, are going to make decisions at the political level and also in the private sector level in different in their localities, but also uh, nationally. So this is one big ambitious policy that we need to do and is doable. Why is doable? Because we are seeing that in the case of, 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 of Asia. And the second idea is to create these centers for democratic leadership in Latin America, across the region. How they work uh, in Latin America, you have a huge dispersion of many organizations, political organizations, particularly young people, but are dispersed. They are not connected. They do not coordinate and they have a great heart, but they don't have a very solid liberal ideology. So we need to go there in order not to create them from scratch, but give them the tools. What it means that create networks among them, start uh, understanding lessons learned, giving them the tools for mobilization and organization, training them in why democracy and the rule of law uh, is important, uh, uh, helping them in order to uh, um, to express their ideas in the locality and in, in national level, in political dynamics. What I'm saying is that these centers could be very powerful if we follow, if we manage it uh, well. And finally, with these centers, my idea is uh, these centers should not focus the elites, the democratic elites. These centers should focus the base of the social pyramid, where the fight for democracy is more intense than at the top. And just to help give people agency, right? Authorship over their future yes. and help them recognize that in a democracy, you, you do have a say in how you're governed. If, you're, if you can organize and, and come up with these ideas and, and turn these ideas into, into improved policies and actions. Well, I really, I really appreciate you know kind of ending on a, on a higher note there. But for those who are still depressed about the democratic depression, uh, I think I think they might enjoy a cocktail at this point of the of, 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 of this episode of Battlegrounds. So, Julio, I'd like to ask you, you know, what is your favorite recipe for a pisco sour? Well, there are several ones. I, sh I should admit, but mine is one, 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 which means one cup of lemon, one cup of pisco, and one cup of Ice. That's my favorite. That's my favorite. But anyone who goes to Peru must have a pisco sour, which is in my, I, I visited many, many, many countries in the world. But honestly and transparently, there is no better than Peruvian food and Peruvian pisco. Nothing. You know, when I traveled in Chile, I heard something <laughs> similar, but I didn't believe it. I didn't believe it. My early days in Peru convinced me that the best. Pisco sours are, are indeed in Peru, as well as the best ceviche, I would say. <laughs> yes, yes, of course. Peru is the best place to eat in the world, I'm sure. Well, can, I, can I ask you to just uh, for some final words to our viewers? What, what message would you like to leave them with, uh, especially you know, our American and international audience uh, who might want to know what they can do to, uh, to help address some of the problems we've talked about today? Yes, I think uh, uh, as a reflection, I think we need to, to learn from history. And, and what history is telling us is that important things take time. 
marriage, <laughs> friendship, uh, education, human progress. The most important things in your life takes time. Where when we talk about what is going on in Latin America, we need to be, uh, 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 we need to have this tranquility to understand that this is going to take time. That maybe this is not is not going to be solved in the next three or five years, but I assure that if we work ten years, we are going to see some results. The Chinese has done everything that we are talking here in fifteen years. So why we don't have that patience and that perspective to do things constantly and believe on that? This is one. And the second. Uh, idea that I would like to share is that that for uh, policymakers, uh, uh, international policymakers, is that Latin America is no longer Latin America of the 80s. And sometimes when I talk to officials and I talk to people uh, interested in the region, they believe that they can treat Latin America like 20 years ago. Uh, no, the dynamics of politics has completely changed, uh, starting for we are in a multipolar world. There is no in the past that the only door that we can knock was the United States. Now we have others. But at the same time, 20 years ago, Latin American countries were, you know, very depressed, uh, no economic growth. Now you have countries that the situation have changed. And, 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 and fundamentally, the difference now is that you have a romance, a romance that is in the making. And that romance is Latin America and Chinese Romans. There is Latin America used to be, used to be the partner of the of the Western world, a rocky relationship, of course, a rocky relationship. But at the end of the day, everybody was aligned with democracy, with freedom, with rights, right? Now that past relationship is being threatened and is being challenged by a new contender, <laughs> but a new uh Prince that is telling stories, and they can finally get a, a, a solid relationship that will that will in the long run damage everybody of us, particularly Peruvians and Latin Americans. Well, I can't I can't thank you enough, and I I hope that maybe there will be some kind of a Bolivarian reaction to uh, to to Chinese uh, Chinese influence and. And malign influence, in particular, in in, uh, in the hemisphere, Dr. Julio Guzman, I, in in your recent essay in Foreign Affairs, and today, I really appreciated everything you had to say. But but I really like this idea of investing in minds, M I N D S. Right. Correct. <laughs> and uh, and of course, that's what we endeavor to do with uh, with the Battleground series. On behalf of the Hoover Institution, I can't thank you enough uh, for helping us learn more about a, a critical and, and sadly a neglected battleground important to building a future of peace and prosperity for generations to come. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much, Janelle. Thank you very much. Battlegrounds is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society. For more information about our work, to hear more of our podcasts, or view our video content, please visit hoover.org.